9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Deep State Radio. It is November 2nd when we are recording this, the day before Election Day in the United States of America. Um, although it's November 3rd in Australia and New Zealand, and I have heard from some of those people that said, you know, like, get on with it. Uh, we are joined here today for our discussion about this momentous week um, by our two founding regulars, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School, who those of you who would have video could see us sitting there wearing a Biden-Harris hat uh, and looking very darn stylish in it in Alexandria, Virginia. Hi, Rosa, how are you? Hi, David. And at the American Enterprise Institute, um, the head of the foreign policy and national security programs there, we, of course, have Corey Shockey. How are you doing, Corey? Oh, I am holding on to the tiara of optimism with both hands today, David. Well, that is your responsibility. Um, Clinging with bloody fingers. (laughs) Exactly. And we are pleased to be joined today by um, a gentleman who's a new guest who is with an organization that I have long admired, the Bergruen Institute. Nils Gilman is the vice president of programs there and the deputy editor of, okay, Nils, NEMA magazine? No Ama. No Ama magazine. Um, that sounds like no Nema. Well, you, re- you reconsider. Yeah, you know it's really hard to come up with an original name for anything these days because every single URL has been uh, for every real word has been squatted on by somebody. So it was pretty hard. We considered a bunch of things, but everything is copyrighted already. So we went with something a little bit, uh, I guess, obscure. Well, you're a little bit in sort of Prince territory there where you pick that symbol and nobody really knows how to pronounce it. But, uh, you know, it adds a certain kind of uh, certain kind of mystique to what's going on. Um, you know, you guys are all like heavyweight intellectuals with big intellectual credentials. Uh, and Corey and Rosa, you and I have been talking about, you know, Trump and the threats of Trump and the politics of this and the global consequences for five years, more than five years. Um, and so rather than getting right in on the intellectual comment on my age, David, no, you started in high school and I, you know, I, rather than getting into the sort of heavy analysis at first. It's the day before election day, uh, Rosa. What do you feel? How do you feel today, Rosa? I I am like a Buddhist. I have emptied my heart of, of feelings. I wish for nothing. I hope for nothing. I accept the flow of the universe. Corey, that sounds like <laughs> Rosa's full of shit to me, but um, <laughs> how do you how do you feel, Corey? Or how do you feel about what Rosa just said? <laughs> I admire Rosa for uh, 
jostling herself through this anxious time with mockery and self-mockery because I one of the things I have always loved best about our sparkly intellectual friend Rosa um, is just how funny I'm, she is. I feel I'm being set up here, Corey. <laughs> nope. Statement of fact. Well, how, how are you feeling, Corey? How do you feel this day before this election? You know, I, I was thinking about you, actually, because I've been watching these stories about people boarding up stores in Washington and California and other places across the country on the day before Election Day, which has never happened, as far as I know, mm -hmm. in the history of Election Days I've been around for. And you have very finely honed sensibilities on these things, Corey, and I, I thought you would be particularly offended by that. Well, I'm not offended by it, but it does make me sad. And I have actually been ardently praying that it proves wholly unnecessary because I hope that the people calculating risk for businesses and apartment buildings who are boarding up in advance of the election, um, I prayerfully hope that they have underestimated the decency of our fellow Americans, that this will be an election uh, in which we remind ourselves who we are as a divided country that respects the rule of law and norm, and in which we can uh, elect or appoint judges whose politics don't determine their legal rulings, um, and that we walk ourselves back from this cliff. So Nils, you're new to this. I'm, I'm sorry, one other thing, David, can yes. I add one other thing? Of course. The thing I am most scared of is that the president of the United States is actively encouraging violence and voter intimidation. And I don't think we've ever seen that before. We certainly haven't seen it in the last hundred years. Yeah, no, and he's definitely doing it. He, he was cheering on the people who are trying to drive a Biden bus off the road. He's cheered on um, so-called militias in Michigan. He has uh, fomented this kind of unrest wherever he could. Nils, you're in, uh, in California right now, is that correct? That's right. And um, uh, clearly the somewhat different perspective there. Um, uh, I, I spent a year growing up in Berkeley when my father was teaching there and felt it was a kind of a little bubble of sanity, although it's not always viewed that way by the rest of the world. Um, how does, <laughs> does this all look to you? Well, I have a couple of reactions. First of all, just reacting to what Corey said. I think part of what has happened, the reason why people are boarding up, for example, is partly in response to things that are happening right away. But I think a lot of people... Um, on the left, broadly speaking, feel like they overestimated the decency of the American people in 2016. I mean, I remember, even though the polls were much closer, I was pretty confident that they were probably off in favor of Hillary, it turned out to be the other way around. Um, but the reason I thought they were gonna be off in favor of Hillary is I just didn't think that there was gonna be enough people in the country who would be willing to vote for somebody as nakedly indecent as Donald Trump. Um, and you know, I've sort of vowed that I'm not going to make that same mistake again, but I realized that in not making that same mistake again, I may be overcompensating in the other direction. So I hope you're right, Corey, that in fact, this country does have its decencies together. Um, specifically to answer your question though, David, about what it looks like from California, 
I started really thinking about this stuff, actually, not so much in my current job, but in my previous job. My previous job was as the associate chancellor uh, at UC Berkeley, as a matter of fact. And I saw there um, in my last couple of years, all sorts of clashes, uh, street clashes between uh, Berkeley became a kind of a staging area for uh, various right wing on the one hand and Antifa groups on the other to literally sort of have battles in certain parks in, uh, in the city of Berkeley. It became a kind of a flashpoint. Didn't really, it, it, it spilled over into campus one day. In fact, just 10 days after Trump was inaugurated, there was uh, the somewhat infamous uh, Milo Yiannopoulos riot that happened in the street. And, you know, working through that over the course of the spring of 17 really taught me a lot about the way in which Trump operates. Um, I, I'll just share one story about that just to give you a sense. So th this Milo Yiannopoulos riot happened on uh, February 2nd, uh, 2017. So it's just, uh, you know, 13 days, two weeks after the, after Trump's inauguration. And, you know, Milo came in, he was going to try to speak. Uh, we had planned, obviously, insufficiently to try to provide security so he'd be able to speak. And then all of a sudden, something that had never happened before, you know, 150 masked people stormed in from uh, South Berkeley and came in and disrupted the, the event. Um, and, uh, and it was a scene from hell, actually, because thousands of people were gathered in the outskirts around Sproul Plaza. There were four news helicopters flashing spotlights onto the campus. There was a big bonfire. There was blaring death metal. It was really a scene that really resembled hell in a lot of ways. And so we dealt with that the whole night. Eventually mutual aid was called in and, and the rioters dispersed. Um, and I finally went home, got home, drank a mug of scotch, went to bed. And at four o'clock in the morning, my phone starts buzzing, buzz, 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 buzz. And, every, and I finally wake up and I look at it with the eye. And I have all these text messages from various friends saying, have you seen what the president has tweeted? Have you seen what the president has tweeted? And what Trump did in his tweet the following morning is he said, if Berkeley won't let conservative speakers speak, we're going to yank federal funding. So what happened next actually is the part that's interesting in this story. So I, I, just, I just rolled over and went to bed. I said, he can't do that. It's irrelevant. But our media operations After, after a mug of scotch, I'm not surprised that you... <laughs> Um, back to sleep. Our media people started fielding calls from uh, journalists all over the country saying, how much federal funding do you get? Right. And so they started to try to figure out how much federal funding do we get from one source and another. Right. And I kept saying, we don't have to answer those questions. He can't yank our federal funding. He doesn't have to have the authority to do that. They said, but we have to respond to the media. We're used to the, a normal media operation responds to queries from reporters, right? And so we were supposed to do that. And then as, as the story evolved over the course of the day, they said, well, actually, he can't yank it just from Berkeley. He'd have to yank it from the whole UC system. So then calls went into all the different UC systems, uh, campuses. How much federal funding are you getting? And they're, all of their media operations get spun up. And then they sort of realized that people realized, actually, he can't just do it to UC the UC system, he'd have to do it to all public universities. And so then public universities across the country start to get these kinds of phone calls about how much federal funding do they get. And one tweet of Trump's had literally spun up hundreds of thousands of man hours of media and crisis media management at universities across the country. And that was a win for him. That was what he wanted. He never intended to do this. He doesn't have the power to do it. But because he got inside of our OODA loop, he was able to sort of distract you know, the enemy institution for days and days and days. It was insane. Yeah, well, you know, I think you're getting to something which is a bigger 
cultural issue here. It resonates for me because when I was a little kid, as I said, my dad taught at Berkeley. It was 1967. I was a little kid. I, I remember this in part because Sean Connery died this week, and, and I remember going to downtown Berkeley to watch movie Thunderball with my brother. It was the first movie I was ever allowed to go see <laughs> um, on, on, on my own. But um, it was the beginning of kind of summer of love, hippie times. We would drive into Haight-Ashbury and look at the hippies. Um, and of course, 68 proved to be a, a, a year where there was considerably more violence because of the deaths of, of Martin Luther King and, and Robert F. Kennedy, and it was a much more tumultuous year. But there was never a moment in that period, and I, there were other people, I suppose, who, who lamented it all, but the, the period was full of this sort of sense of unrest, but, but hope, unrest, but, you know, that this was happening in France as well, um, and, and, and in 68, and, and beyond then, you know, in the Czech, Czechoslovakia and so forth, there was this kind of sense of rebirth that comes from, from revolution. And there is this sense of foreboding, Rosa, that, that is associated with the, 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 the fostering of these divisions there's this sense, you know, tomorrow is supposed to be a celebration of democracy. And, and, and for many people, it's kind of a day of dread because there, not only is there the threat of violence, but there's a threat, which has been articulated pretty clearly of a presidential coup that it might, you know, that the, they might just blow the whistle on democracy. Now, with some luck, they won't have the power to do that. But but it's it's a it's just not a feeling I've ever experienced in my life. Now, am I overstating that? Do you have a, that same kind of sense of apprehension? No, I mean, yeah, I I, I certainly have a sense of apprehension, um, and and I don't know if you're overstating it. Uh, you know, I didn't live through 1968. Uh, I I was a child in the 1970s. I know that this country has gone through periods in which there has been frequent political violence in the past. And, you know, not only obviously the, the, the late 60s, the assassinations of Martin Luther King, uh, JFK, Bobby Kennedy, um, but also the 1970s and you know, the era of the weather underground and, and anarchist you know, left-wing terror groups and so forth. And um, you know, when, you, when you look at certain measures, when you look at crime rates, when you look at the number of police officers, killed on duty, uh, when you look at terrorist incidents, both globally and in the United States, there have been within, you know, within the last 50, 60 years, there have been bad periods uh, for the United States. So, so, so I, I don't know how to compare this to that in terms of the level of threat. I, I really don't. Um, I guess I, I guess I feel uh, simultaneously a sense of a real foreboding, but also hope for real renewal. I, I mean, you were, David, you were sort of saying in 1968, it felt a little scary, but it also felt like the world was maybe on the cusp of 
very positive change. And in some ways that was that was accurate, right? That this was the era of the civil rights movement, the emergence of the women's rights movement, you know, that we did begin. That was a it was an important period in which the United States and the globe began to move towards a much more inclusive form of politics than we had previously had, um, although obviously we're not there yet. And 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 I, I feel a little bit that way right now. I, I, I feel like we are, you know, I it's hard to find a metaphor that isn't ridiculously overused, but that we're, you know, we're we're sort of walking on a tightrope. And if we, you know, if we in one on one side of it, you know, looms this precipice full of, you know, flesh-eating vultures and Ivanka Trump and you know, God knows what, right? Um, horrors, authoritarian horrors lie on one side of it. And we could go that way uh, and it could be very, very bad. And, and I always, as you know, um, I always think that we underestimate the possibility that really, 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 really bad things could happen. You know, that this is uh, Mills, you're Californian, you know, that we, we, we have millions of people who live on top of the San Andreas Fault and are kind of like, well, there hasn't been an earthquake yet, so I'm sure everything's fine. And everybody will feel that way until the day there's an earthquake and it's catastrophic, right? And, and so I always feel like never underestimate the possibility of genuine catastrophe, civil war, et cetera. On the other hand, I feel like it might, that might not happen. You know, Biden, Biden could win decisively, sufficiently decisively that Republican leaders in the GOP all sort of say to him, sorry, dude, you lost. You know, we're going to go for 2024. Uh, meanwhile, you need to exit stage right here. Um, that does not by any stretch of the imagination mean that our troubles are over. Um, you know, all those, all those right-wing extremist violent groups will still be there. All of the nastiness that was unleashed and given, given permission and praise from our president will still be there. We'll still have to deal with it. But if that happens, if there is a Biden administration, um, it, particularly if the Democrats are able to take the Senate, I also think we do have some real and astonishing opportunities for real renewal. And we've talked about this before, the ways in which the Trump administration, for better or for worse, in many ways for worse, but in a few ways for better, has sort of shaken up American ideological categories, which have been so rigid for so long and, and widened the sphere of political discourse, brought together lots and lots of strange bedfellows. Nils and I have been working closely in, in the, our transition integrity project exercises with lots of uh, neocon never Trumpers who we previously would not really have had much contact with. And there's lots of common ground. And, and I think that the, the possibility of, not, of a real renewal of American conversations about politics and culture are there too on the other side. You know, one side lies the, the broken glass and Ivanka Trump and the other side lies a genuine possibility of, of renewal will be very, very difficult, but there is real hope there at the same time. So I'm kind of, I'm not, I'm not all doom and gloom. I'm, I'm sort of 50% doom and gloom and 50% excitement and hope. Corey, how does that, how does that make you feel? You know, I mean, Rose is halfway there. Well, um, I have about the same distribution of apprehension and hopefulness that Rosa does which I think is a first. 
I'm genuine. It's all glass half full, glass half empty, Corey. <laughs> I am genuinely scared uh, by the number of my fellow Republicans who have been enabling the president's unconstitutional and reprehensible behavior. I am also, however, you know, it it does feel like this is the last gasp like of an America that um, in which Donald Trump's policies could be supported by a majority of voters. I, it does feel like we are living in genuinely historic times and, and that uh, I think what historians two generations from now who are teaching eighth grade history classes in American history will say about this time is that it's remarkable that so much change was achieved with so little violence. The passing from power of an outdated, um, not just an outdated elite, but outdated conceptions of um, who counts as, as, you know, who deserves to be involved in decision-making. I, I do feel like we are, this election, we are feeling the last gasp of a collapsing, and I think, uh, an order that that views scarcity of opportunity, scarcity of um, of stature, and opening the aperture into an era of inclusiveness and an in, and an era in which we define success not by exclusion of others but by inclusion. That is a a definition of success that is um, one of plenty, not one of scarcity. So, Nils, before you came on, I was saying that I was struck by the grounding of the institute you're now associated with in a sort of philosophical views. And if you listen to Rosa, you listen to Corey, um, and I think both of them are right. And I think if you observe the world, you sense that we may be at one of these sort of moments of sort of philosophical struggle as a country. Um, and it's not the false Republican Democrat struggle. We're Republic, we're democracy, we're federalist, we're, 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 um, uh, you know, strong central government kind of thing, but it, it's, it's more to me anyway, and I, you've written about this, um, it's kind of what's the social contract, you know. It goes back. It goes back to the sort of the grounding of so why do we do this? What's in it for all of us in this society that is grotesquely unequal, uh, not just in terms of wealth distribution, but in terms of distribution of power, um, and 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 maybe you know we don't. The world doesn't resolve these things in the 30 years war or in the enlightenment or in 1848 or, or the 20th century, it does it in increments. And I'm just wondering if you get that, is that, is it, you know, am I, again, am I overstating this? Is this just, you know, politics as usual, or is the United States 
does it have to come to grips with what does it mean to be the 21st century United States when for more than half of that century, more than half of the population is going to be people we once thought of as minorities when it'll be the first entire century where everybody was connected to everybody else by technology um, and everything that everybody did was visible um, to everybody else. And we're, we were connected to the rest of the world in a different way. And, and that this really requires not just going back and thinking, you know, what do we need to fiddle with inside the constitution, but a step further back into why are we all doing this together? Yeah, well, that's obviously a huge question. I, I want to go back to the previous question you were, or the previous point you were making, David, about 1968 and compared to this moment. Um, I was talking to my father uh, the other night about this, and you know, he was uh, in graduate school during 1968 and had just gotten married. Um, and uh, you know, my mother moved from Denmark and into this country that was you know, literally in flames, and she wondered what the, the felt like the wheels were coming off the bus at that point. But in some sense, the institutions didn't feel under threat. I think what's different now, and this, with this election in particular, is there's a, a sense that the institutional architecture of the country itself could be smashed if, uh, you know, if, if Trump gets his way, to put it bluntly, um, in a way that I don't think was quite up for grabs in the same way in 68. Things were in some ways worse. I mean, you know, there was, you know, uh, you know 100, 100 Americans were coming home in body bags every week in 1968. Um, there was the Tet Offensive, there were the assassinations you referred to, there were the riots, there was the Democratic National Convention. I mean, 68 was really bad and in some ways much worse than, than our current moment, but it didn't feel as if the entire institutional architecture of the democracy was at stake. Now, the question is, why are we in this moment where there is this sense that one party is willing to sacrifice the institutional architecture, or at least risk sacrificing the institutional architecture? And I think it's precisely because we're at this inflection point that you're referring to, David. And it's an inflection point that scares the hell out of that particular party. You talked about the historians in two generations and how they're gonna narrate this. Well, one problem with historians, and I say this as a sometime historian, a defrocked historian perhaps, um, is that they can't help but be teleological. The story they're gonna tell about what the Trump administration meant is gonna depend entirely on what happens in the next few years. So even though the events have already happened of 2016 to 2020, for the most part, if the institutions come apart, then historians will tell one story. If the institutions hold and renew, then they'll tell another story. So I wanna just give a metaphor about the way they'll probably tell the story if the institutions hold and your version that this is the last gasp of a dying order. The story they'll tell is something like what the story they tell in California is about what happened to the Republican Party in the 1990s and the aughts. In 1994, there was an election where the less talented female scion of a political dynasty was nominated for an election post that she really had no business being nominated for and went on to lose in an election she had no business losing to a Republican who ran an entirely racist campaign in order to hold on to power for one last time. And it worked, Pete Wilson got reelected in 1994. Um, and, uh, you know, he held on to power for one more round, okay? The problem was that the demography kept moving, right, in the state of California. And the Republicans, with the one weird exception of Arnold Schwarzenegger in the recall election in 2002, haven't won anything statewide since because the, the, the demography kept moving 
And it was the last chance the Republicans had to run that particular playbook in this state. The difficulty, of course, is that there are many Republicans across the country who know what happened in California, and they too can see the writing on the wall. The reason why, and Stephen Miller, who was just coming of political consciousness at this very moment in, in the mid-1990s, um, understood what happened. And that's why they are determined to change the demographic direction of the country. They recognize if we keep moving this way, yes, this is not gonna be possible to maintain the old white elite East Coast power structure the way it's been for, you know, since the founding of the country. And they feel therefore that the basis of the country as they understand it is being taken away from them. And they genuinely feel that. I don't think that that's bullshit on their part. And they're also determined to stop it. And that's why they're willing to sacrifice the institutions. They weren't willing to sacrifice the institutions in order to save them, to use another 1968 analogy. I feel inclined to go to Corey next to respond to that. And then I'll go to Rosa. Um, I, so I watched the movie, The Trial of the Chicago Seven uh, the other night. And I was really struck that uh, it didn't feel as hopeful as your recollections of 1968. And in particular on race issues, it was shocking. Um, uh, and that happened within your and my lifetime, David. And so, um, so that gives me a frame of reference for thinking about it, which is that uh, my historian's uh, compass is slightly different than Mills's. Namely, I think when you're living through historic times, you almost never can understand it because you're in the middle of a stream with a fast rushing current. And as Mills said, on the far side, you're gonna tell the story uh, depending on whether you drown or whether you swim. I, I don't recall the Pete Wilson election um, very carefully, so I can't, I can't speak to the specific analogy, except to say that uh, the ballot measure that Pete Wilson put up to deny illegal immigrants any sort of social services in California is what I recall casting the long shadow over Republican electability in the state of California. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that, that was the centerpiece of his campaign was that particular ballot measure, as well as the anti-affirmative action uh, ballot measure. Um, and those two things, which were um, marketed, if you will, in an entirely dog whistly racialized way um, were uh, designed to drive up the uh, Republican white voting base. Um, and it worked, uh, you know, that, that, that was the explicit strategy in the same way, you know, that ballot measures are often used to sort of create a, a central narrative around a particular election. I mean, think about the way in which um, Karl Rove used the gay marriage issue to make that a central issue of the 2004 campaign by putting anti-gay marriage initiatives on the ballot in uh, six or seven states, if I recall correctly. So Pete Wilson used that kind of strategy in the 1994 campaign and 
and and that was the bad. And you're absolutely right that uh, the backlash against those ballot measures and against the racial language, the racialized dog whistly language that was used to market them, um, is what caused the essentially demise of the Republican Party in California. And and now for better and both and for worse, it's a one party state. Well, uh, so that's where I was headed, which was to say that um, the that. Wilson and California Republicans bet that they could, they had the same kind of um, uh, recrudescence of the past that Trump is trying to market. And, and you're right, it absolutely devastated Republicans' chances for statewide office in California. And we, and it showed that only a, you know, only lightly tinged Republican like Arnold Schwarzenegger could get statewide office, but the California Republican Party has remained um, uh, more extreme than Republican parties where they are electable for statewide office. That is, it didn't moderate or attenuate Republican, the, the bulk of voting Republicans in California. And so I think that does suggest cause for concern about how will we think about um, the 42% or so of Americans who continue to support Donald Trump? How do we find a way for uh, dealing with that other than just pointing out that you're never going to win an election unless you're more, unless you open the aperture of your ideas. So uh, I, I, if I could just talk a little bit more about this California case, because I'm not sure that your listeners necessarily know about it, but and it's an analogy or it's a, it's a historical episode. It may not play out the same way at the national level. Um, but if we're trying to think what a post-Trump era might look like nationally, and we think about the California example, you're absolutely right, Corey, that it did not, the, the fact that the Republicans became unelectable at a statewide level has done nothing to moderate, if anything, the opposite, the California Republican Party's ideological positions. Um, meanwhile, the demography has kept moving. But the California Republican Party, let's recall, have with the, again with the weird exception of Schwarzenegger have not won uh, have not been able to win uh, or control the legislatures have not been able to win statewide offices at any level since 1995 so for 25 years they've been in the wilderness not moderating themselves but in the aughts uh, they were able to effectively completely block any kind of reasonable measures of you know, uh, to deal with the many problems that uh, California was having. California was probably the most dysfunctional state from a governance perspective in the union uh, for the first 10 years of this, of this century. Um, and, you know, this is directly related to why the Begruen Institute was set up, was to sort of try to institute initially reforms in the state of California to make it more governable. And this is one of the things I worry about is that the Trump faction uh, in, the, in the country partly because of the way in which the US Senate is constructed, um, is gonna be able to exercise a blocking faction on the opportunities for renewal that Rosa was talking about. So even if the Republican party, you know, imagine if Trump loses Texas tomorrow and Texas turns decisively blue, it's hard to imagine how the Republican party 
is ever going to be able to win national elections again as, as long as people get to vote and the votes get counted. But they're still going to be able to potentially through the Senate and through the courts block progressive reform and the kind of renewal Rose is talking about for, for years, if not decades. And that is the lesson of what happened in California. It wasn't until 2010 that we really got to the point where there was a breakthrough in governance and uh, the Democrats achieved super minorities, super majorities, excuse me, and were able to actually, you know, institute changes to make the state slightly less dysfunctional. Um, and I worry that's what we could have it happen in the country nationally is that we could be looking at the 2020s into the 2030s with, you know, the Coney Barrett court striking down progressive reforms here and here and there uh, for the indefinite future. Yeah, no, and that's, by the way, not an accident, right? That's a 30-year plan of a group of people that have been trying to, who recognize the demographic changes that are taking place and want to, wanted to find ways to cling to power using other institutional structures. And that's why the mission that you guys are on at the Brook Gruen Institute is going to be a national challenge, not a California challenge going forward for where we are. But if I may, in the last part of our conversation here, um, uh, with, with, Rosa to take her to her darker place. Um, the, the, the reality is that what we're talking about here is sort of two kinds of analyses going back and forth. One is the center standard political analysis. One side wins, the other side wins. There's ebb, there's flow. Then in, in Nils's latter point, we're talking about a dysfunctional uh, political system in which a minority is able to exert power through a variety of gambits and 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 as a result undermine the intent of democracy but there's another place everything can go and and that's the one and you know I'm sorry to bring it up and I'm not doing it to be alarmist but but it's it's the one that you're talk about periodically Rosa and that is that things don't have to be within that frame things can get much worse. And I have to say, as we are talking about all of this, and I sort of see Twitter, and usually when we're doing these shows, Nils, I watch Twitter to see who Rosa and Corey are talking to when they're not actually doing doing the show. Um, and, and and by the way, Rosa, I saw that you took the moment to tweet something out. I was tweeting your yeah. stuff out. You support his book. Yeah, you were supporting my book. Yeah. I'm, re I'm really grateful for that. But having said that, I also noticed two things. In Portland, Oregon, liberal Oregon, the governor has the National Guard on standby. In Chicago, Illinois, there's video of the National Guard rolling into town right now. And perhaps most chillingly for me, and it doesn't have to do with America, but it reminds me of how things can go off track. Right now, in central Vienna, where my father grew up, there is massive gunfire around the synagogue, probably the synagogue he went to, um, which is part of, undoubtedly we will see some aspect, one side or the other, of violent trends exist within European society that have existed there for a long time and periodically taken things off the rail. And when I see somebody saying, shots fired, many shots near a synagogue in Vienna, to me, because that's where my father escaped from, you know, it says, the shit can hit the fan. It can be not a discussion about politics, 
but something far more um, far more critical. And I, you know, tomorrow we're on a knife's edge. And it might not involve violence in the streets if the president of the United States can use the rigged courts that we're talking about here and claim several close elections strategically for himself and undermine the will of the people. That's a coup the same as driving a bunch of tanks into the presidential palace is a coup. And I, you know, I'm just wondering how, you know, how realistic, how, how should we grapple with the fact that that's part of this equation now? It's really hard to know what to do with that. I mean, it's interesting, obviously, um, you know, Nils and I have both spent uh, a much higher percentage of our, of our last nine months than I think either of us ever expected on, on both planning and then commenting on the exercises we did through the Transition Integrity Project. And Corey too, was part of some of those initial shaping conversations. Um, and and you know one of the things that I think we started saying very early that was both necessary to say and brought us under some criticism was things could get so much worse than you think, um, you know. And we've talked about this before. This this sort of the prevailing metaphor of the guardrails of democracy is is so fundamentally misleading. Uh, insofar as it it, it implies, um, you know, we've all been on these amusement park rides where you're, you know, you're careening around on the roller coaster and there are no guardrails, and then you get to the tippy tippy weird part, and these little metal things go like boing, and they pop right up and save you from, you know, hurtling to your death over the side, and and we think of the guardrails of democracy as sort of similar, you know, these these mechanical things that are just built into the system. And you don't need to make them go up, they just go up to save you at the important moment. And, and that, that metaphor is, is so profoundly wrong. You know, to the extent that there are guardrails of democracy, those guardrails consist of, of human lives and human commitments and human consciences and human decisions, um, often, often human decisions that are made under under pressure in chaotic moments at and sometimes at great personal risk um and those are the guardrails and you don't get those guardrails going up if you're not prepared you know because one thing we we, we know about humans and we know this from the holocaust and we know this from the rwanda genocide and the cambodian genocide and the bosnian uh and former yugoslavian civil wars we know that humans put under pressure by a sudden sudden upsurge of violence, threats, uh, uh, extra legal actions and so on, most of them don't do the right thing. Not because they're evil people, but because they're scared. You know, this is what this is what uh, generations of social psychology research tells us too. You know, that, that they, they look around and they kind of look at what the people next to them are doing and what their boss is doing and what their family's doing. And everybody else is looking around too, going, oh shit, well, we should just, you know, go along to get along or get along to go along or whatever the heck that phrase is. I forget, you know what I mean? Um, and they make the wrong decision. And then if then things go horrifically bad and 10 years later, everybody looks back and goes, oh, how could that have happened? We were all such nice people. You know, and 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 so I think I think one of the things that the Transition Integrity Project tried to do was to say, um, hey, everybody, there's a set of risks that range from a kind of quiet push in you know bloodless coup in which our institutions are just subverted 
and half of the American people don't even notice, but democracy's gone. Um, best case scenario, worst case scenario is, is a real descent into violence and chaos. And these are real risks. We cannot quantify them. The metaphor that Nils, Nils used at one point, which I've been repeating to everybody else is, you know, if somebody said, hey, there's, you know, there's a unknown chance, but it could be as high as one in a hundred that somebody's going to burst into your office with a machete and start slashing. Do you just shrug and go about your business? Or do you say, ooh, gee, you know, maybe it's time to get better locks on the door or whatever, you know, that even a small, these are, you know, these low, low probability, high consequence events, even a small possibility of things going horrifically bad, you need to think now, not wait until the emergency about what you're going to do. And I, you know, I think we came under a little bit of criticism for saying this because there were there were some who reacted by kind of by saying, oh, you guys are so alarmist, you're just gonna scare people, quit talking about these, you know, scary things that probably aren't gonna happen. And and our counter argument has always been, we sure hope they don't happen, but whether they happen or not is actually has a whole lot to do with what we do between now and election day. And this was back months ago, obviously. I mean, now we're getting a little close to take meaningful action. Um, you know, that, that it's again, I mean, to use a different metaphor, as I've said before, it's, it's like COVID. How bad will COVID be uh, at the end of January? The answer to that question is not a fixed answer based on, you know, probabilistic curves now. The answer to that question is, well, it depends what you do. You know, are you going to wear a mask or you're not going to wear a mask? You're going to go to the bar, or you're not going to go on the bar. It's that, you know, all that kind of stuff that, that, that if you don't, if you can't, face those risks squarely, even with the acknowledgement that we have no idea how to measure their probability. And Nate Silver had this sort of slightly funny column at one point where he was like, okay, guys, here's my forecast. Here's how I did my forecast. But guess what? I have absolutely no fucking idea how to factor in the risk of civil war coups or anything like that. So there's a pretty big asterisk next to my forecast because I do statistics. I'm a, I'm a pollster. I don't do political stuff. Um, who knows? Um, so I, I don't know how scared we should be. Um, I, I, I really don't. I mean, scared enough to be scared, scared enough that I still think, you know, it's, it's, and everybody I talk to now, I say, it's not too late to call all your Republican friends who are in elected office and so on and say, what are you doing? Make a pre-commitment, no vigilante violence, et cetera, et cetera. It's not too late to call your local city council, your local chief of police, et cetera, and say the same things, um, you know, um, other than that, I think we're at the sort of cross your fingers and pray stage. Um, I would like to have a conversation. I don't think we have time today, but but depending on what the outcome is in the next week, I hope that in one of our future episodes soon, you know, there's a. I hope we will be in a position to have the conversation that I think Nils and Corey were getting at. Um, what do you do when your institutions have been so badly broken? What do you do when you're, or at least one of your parties, and frankly, I think in some ways, both of our parties have been so badly broken. How do you rebuild? If, you, if, you are, if we are so fortunate as to have that opportunity, and we may have that opportunity, and I, and I, you know, I think there's at least a 50% chance that we will have that opportunity. Um, what, where do we start? You know, where, where Corey, where do Republicans start? Where do Democrats start? Do they start separately? Do they start together? 
Do we have a big giant, you know, start over Palooza event, which of course would have to be on Zoom and <laughs> in which we say, okay, everybody, you know, what the heck just happened to our political system? What are we gonna do to make sure this doesn't happen again? How do we reinvent American politics? You know, what is that process? Where do we begin it? Who needs to be part of it? How do we get them to be part of that? You know, how do we bring in the voices that are often excluded from those conversations? And that's, I hope we will have the luxury of having that conversation rather than the where's the bunker entrance conversation. Um, I'm optimistic that we will. Uh, and, and if we get the chance to have that conversation, I can think of absolutely nothing more urgent after this election. Well, I, I totally agree with you. And I, you know, I didn't really know where this conversation was going to go when we started, but I'm so glad we had it and so glad that you could join us, Nils, and 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 of course, good to continue this very long ongoing conversation with with Corey and with Rosa. Um, but I think Rosa's point is well taken. Uh, and I think that, you know, there is there will be a tendency if things turn out in a certain way tomorrow for most of the folks in Washington to hit the reset switch, go back to norm and have a discussion about whether we should increase or decrease the defense budget by 2% and, and not have a discussion about, you know, what is the underpinning philosophy of this? Why are we all in this? What is the social contract? And also related to this issue of how do you build the institutions? I think an issue that all of you have touched upon is how do you restore the guardrails? Because before you can get in the plane and decide where you want to fly the plane, I used to be a pilot, so I think these ways. Before what? you get, yeah, I private, private pilot. I never knew this about you. I yeah. didn't either. Yeah. Well, but before you get in the plane, you you and and fly someplace, you got to make sure the plane is airworthy, right? You got to make sure that it actually flies. And unless you've got certain basic boxes checked about guardrails, about what is um, uh, required in order to successfully have a functioning fair government, you can't get onto those next con conversations either. So I, I think the, the point from that I'm taking away from this is here we are at the at, at, at sort of the knife's edge about which way things can go. And having come this close, I hope we learn that we've got to go to some foundational questions before we go back to the incrementalism. And can I just can I just riff for one moment off your pilot metaphor? Because again, those guardrails can't just be a, a little checklist or a bunch of mechanical things that, that you can't forget the human element of the guardrails. And there was a famous study done, which I, I teach in a, in a seminar I teach at Georgetown called Good and Evil. Which is really an excuse. Do you jointly teach that with somebody who teaches the good part? Hey, no, no. <laughs> um, no I mean, it's basically a social psychology and law seminar. And there's a famous study on obedience in the airplane cockpit, which some of you may have may have read. And it's very much in the tradition of some sort of Erwin Staub's work and uh, Stanley Milgram's work. Um, so it turns out, right, and this is this is I think from twenty or so years ago. It turns out that when you when you do the sort of post-mortem audits of plane crashes, um, it often turns out that the co-pilot knew what was going wrong and could see it. Like, oh, holy shit, we're about to fly into a mountain. 
but that the the hierarchy and the culture of obedience uh, and conformity to which uh, airline commercial pilots um, and many private pilots, many of whom were former military, had been trained in, was such that you do not question or challenge the pilot. Um, and so you get these situations where the co-pilot would be like, uh, sir, I think there's a mountain we're going to fly into. And the pilot would be like, oh, don't be silly. There's no mountain. And the co-pilot would be like, uh, oh, okay, sir. And would shut up instead of saying, uh, you know, I'm sorry. No, we're, I'm, I'm taking control of the plane because we're about to fly into a mountain. And so they would fly into the mountain. Everybody would die. Uh, I, I exaggerate slightly, but this did more or less happen. Uh, in multiple occasions. And this actually led to a real revamping of how pilots and co-pilots are trained to try to figure out not just how do you teach people to do that safety checklist where they're saying, hey, do we have enough fuel? You know, have we de-iced, et cetera, but also to be saying, um, how, what are you gonna do if something goes wrong and the senior person doesn't seem to notice it and the junior person does notice it? And what is the protocol for that? And now pilots actually are trained with simulations and scenario-based training and sort of, you know, first you say, hey, sir, I've got a little bit of a concern here. Then you say, hey, sir, I got a really big concern here. Then you say, hey, sir, you don't seem to be noticing this. If you don't do anything about this concern, I'm gonna take the controls in five minutes. Then you say, I'm taking the controls, we're about to fly into a mountain. And, 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 and you need to, the, the shoring up those guardrails needs to incorporate that aspect too, that human aspect that says these guardrails are fundamentally made up of people and they work only when we have a culture that says we are committed to these norms. We have thought about what it looks like when they are broken. We have thought about dissent and how we need to create a safe space for dissent and respect that we have thought about what we as individuals and collectively are going to do, you know, and that that has got to be such a crucial piece of it as well. Well, Nils, we, uh, you know, that's a lot of work we've given you and good luck with it. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I hope you, I hope you don't mind that that's the direction this all took uh, on your first visit here. This is uh, this was great. Thank you for having me on. And I will say, I, I would love to join if we have a conversation about the renewal question, because this is in fact exactly what the Bruin Institute is trying to take on: um, is thinking about how do we do the renewal we need for our democracy, for the way our, you know the capitalism functions, so it can become more inclusive, um, so that we can work more uh, effectively together on a global scale on planetary challenges. So that's exactly what I do in my day job, and I'd love to come back and talk to you about it some other time. Well, let's 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 do that. In fact, why don't we uh, we'll reach out to you and maybe we can put together a little roundtable discussion, a different kind of a thing, maybe a webinar where we can get some people to participate from the audience. Uh, that would be helpful to what you're doing and helpful to our general mission, which is just to stir up trouble. Um, but, uh, you know, good trouble, as 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 we say. Uh, in any event, thank you for doing this. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, good luck uh, tomorrow, uh, America. Um, and uh, we'll be back with a, a show on Wednesday and a show on Thursday, looking at where we stand in terms of, of, of the election. And, you know, with some luck, you know, shows in weeks after that, if there are weeks after that. And um, otherwise, you know, we'll let you know what gulag we end up in. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, pardon me. Thank you for ending on that note of good. Yeah. Yeah, the cheerful, cheerful note. But um, uh, in the meantime, also try to remember to 
to stay healthy, everybody. And if you want more info on all these shows, go to the dsrnetwork.com. Oh, thanks very much. And vote, please. And vote. Yes. No, by all means, vote. And if you um, can help others vote, help them vote too. Bye-bye.